loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Corey Marie. Corey Marie is the author of over 20 books, including 18 novels, three books of poetry, and a memoir. She's loved books and words all her life. She reads almost every genre you can think of, but when she writes, she writes science fiction, fantasy, and thrillers, or often something that's all of the above. In 2014, she founded her own publishing imprint, Timberlane Press, and in 2020, she launched a true crime podcast, Who Killed My Mother, under the name K.B. Marie, sharing the true story of her mother's tragic death. When she's not eating, reading, writing, or indulging in her true calling as a stay-at-home dog mom, my wife would relate to that, she loves to plan her next adventure and travel. She lives in Michigan with her equally bookish wife, Kim, and their rescue dog, rescue pug, Charlie. Almost left the pug part out. (laughs) Welcome, Corey. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, I, I have to say, just to start out with, that I always, you know, thoroughly, I always read the entire book when people have written a book. I read everything they send. I watch all kinds of things. And, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I got to finish this. I was so incredibly compelled by your podcast uh, for many different reasons, which we'll talk about. But, um what an amazing accomplishment to to put that together out of your own quite brutal experience. I really appreciated it a lot. Oh, thank you so much. It means a lot to me that the, the story resonates with other people, as I'm sure we will explain why. <laughs> explain why. <laughs> right. But, well, it, but that's like the primary thing that meant so much to me was that others would, would find value in sharing that story. And, you know, it's... Um, it's true that when we, I, I heard a, a quote from Mark Nepo, the poet, once, and, and he said, if you're specific enough about your personal experience, if you go deep enough, it will become universal. Mm-hmm. And that's part of how I felt because, of course, our experiences are quite different in terms of the losses in our lives and how they uh, how they impacted us. But there was a universality as well. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm a person who has my experiences and reflects on my experiences often at the same time. Right. And, and part of what stood out about your podcast is your capacity to do that, to, to observe the experience and still have it. So I appreciate oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I was down in it. <laughs> we, down in it. <laughs> I, was, I think that will be apparent to anyone. <laughs> like, I, was, I was feeling it. It was definitely absolutely. not something I was observing from above. <laughs> no, absolutely no. not. And yet, um, as we'll talk about in half a second here, um, trauma often does uh, interrupt people's capacities, Right, but yeah. that, but you were able to be traumatized by your mother's death, 
uh, which was particularly traumatic from my point of view, and also stay investigative. Uh, maybe maybe that's partly your um, your skill as a writer, you know, since you've written so many books that that involve kind of uh, challenging human drama, I guess. Yes. So let's let's start Absolutely. at the very beginning. Uh, okay. That that day. Uh, with your two phone calls, which is uh, that, that, you know, there are these days that are turning points in a person's life. I can, I could tell you all of mine pretty much. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I'm sure. <laughs> if it was, if, if I, I forgot you were interviewing me, right. <laughs> but um, that, that day just strikes me as such an incredible turning point. Can you talk about you know, what actually happened and then how your system responded to it because it's yeah, sure. so, so big. Absolutely. Well, I have to tell you, I didn't think that the day was going to go like that when it started. Um, at the time, we have we had squirrels nesting in the wall behind our bed. So literally just 20 minutes before I got this phone call, I was out on the roof trying to like get the squirrel out of the wall. <laughs> I was I'm shouting through the window at my wife. So I, I thought the day was going to go very differently um, the way that it, was it started. It going to be all about squirrels? Is that <laughs> yeah. what you I, I mean, I just, you know, I thought I was just, I it was going to be in 4th of July that if we had a squirrel problem and, and I don't know, I just, I thought the day was going to be a very mundane, um, you know, 4th of July weekend. Not much was going on. We, we weren't going anywhere because it was the pandemic, right? So we were going to have a quiet 4th of July at home. Um, but then at about 9 a.m., I got the first call, and it was from my uncle, uh, who I called Joe in the podcast, though that's not his real first name. All the other names are true. Like, I didn't feel right about changing my mother's name. Mm -hmm. um, and I got permission from all the other people who I did use their name, but I didn't include his name. And um, so Joe called me and said, I went into your mother's bedroom and I found her, you know, and she's dead. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean she's dead? Like, what, what happened? Like, and he couldn't give me any real information. He, he was like, she was just blue. I turned her over, you know, I, and there was a lot of things that could have happened, you know, like, so my mother hasn't had great health for a long time. So I didn't know if it was COVID or if something had happened, you know, it was just very nebulous what the situation was and he wasn't giving me good information. Um, and so my first thought was it was a health problem and that maybe he just didn't take her to the hospital like he should have um, because of the pandemic or, but all my thoughts were basically innocuous. Like I didn't think that he had done anything to her, even though he had said a couple of things to me that were red flags, like he had asked me if I had an insurance policy on her, which I thought was strange. <laughs> like, why yeah. are we thinking about that? And then secondly, he had, um, he had said, you know, her face is blue, like an overdose. And, and I was like, why, why would he even think that that was a possibility which I go into in great depth in the story. Yes. Why? Because why? of all of the things she did, she didn't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, what? Um, but he would know because he had been a longtime heroin user, you know, so that, that was definitely his experience, his world. So if, if he, I, I believed that he knew what someone looked like when they were overdosing, that he knew what a person who had died by overdose looked like. I wasn't, I didn't doubt that. I was just very confused why he was thinking 
that my mother, who had probably just gone to bed or whatever, was now dead of an overdose in her bedroom, uh, you know, on a Saturday morning. It was it was very strange, but I was so surprised to get the news. I didn't think much past that until about four hours later when I got the call from the detective, which was 2.25 p.m. in the afternoon. So he called about 9 a.m., so... Wait, that's not four hours. <laughs> I can't do math. What, what is it? How many hours that is? Five nine hours? to two. Nine to two. Yeah, something like that. But those not that very time. long in between, for sure. Yeah. So it was. I in those hours, you know, I was sad. I was disappointed. I was wondering what happened, but I was just thinking it was health related. For that space of time, I was just, oh, she got, she got COVID. Um, she's had, she's been a longtime smoker. You know, she didn't have great health. Maybe that that's what happened. Or, or maybe um, she also had had hepatitis C for a long time. Maybe there was some issue, like her liver shut down for some unknown reason. Like I was just running through health scenarios. Yes. Yes. Um, and she had had a brain traumatic brain injury years before. So like, was it an undetected blood clot? Like, I don't like, I don't know. Like, I, but I was just running down anything but what you, what anything. you ended up yeah. believing in the end. Yeah, um, anything but what I, I determined later. Absolutely. Would you read, I think that uh, this this part of the podcast, which will become a memoir very soon, mm-hmm. in a few months, uh, about that initial moment, I think it captures so well all the various intersecting parts of this. Would you, yes. would you read that? And oh, listen- of course. Listeners, it's a it's a bit long, and I left it long because um, it just uh, I don't think it could be shortened and capture. Every I tried, I it. tried, guys, I tried, <laughs> but like the scene is kind of a whole scene. Yeah, it's but, a whole thing. I'll, yeah. I'll do my best to use my dramatic reading voice to like really take you down into the moment. <laughs> See if that, <laughs> that helps us along. Okay, so I'll start now. My belief that my uncle simply didn't want to take my mother to a hospital during a deadly pandemic, that his fears were natural rather than malicious, evaporate when my phone rings at 2.25 that afternoon. It's been four hours now of me not cleaning my house, me lying on the sofa with my pug Charlie snoring on my chest, when the Nashville area number flashes on my screen. Hello? Is this Corey? A man asks. Letha's daughter. My heart takes off like a rabbit who hears a twig snap. Yes, this, this is she. I'm Detective Barnes with the Nashville Police Department. What can you tell me about your mom and her brother's history together? I tell him of the times he's hit her, choked her, the time he struck her with a glass ashtray in 2006, how it caved in her head and had emergency surgery to let the blood out, how she almost died. I'm trying not to relive that day, but the memory swells like a wave, and already I'm walking into the dark hospital room to find my mother small and wrapped like a doll in the hospital bed. The layers of gauze make her head look swollen. From her left side, a tube runs out, draining the blood that would otherwise drown her, kill her. In the days that follow, she would smile at me, but not be able to say my name. She couldn't walk without help. She had to relearn how to speak, how to move her body, and I had to watch. Me sitting in the rehabilitation room, her asking me to shave the other side of her head so it will all grow back even. Me with a razor, doing a terrible job of it, 
because I'm trying to be careful of the 60-plus staples holding her scalp together. That has been my role in this life, it seems, to bear witness to her suffering and have no power to prevent it. The detective is still talking. The condition in which her body was found, the state of her room, her clothes, and her keeps, he keeps changing his story. The state of her body, her clothes, her room. I'm certain he's telling me that my mother has been beaten to death, that her final moments must have been full of pain and terror, that the ashtray had come down again, but that this time there had been no one to make the call, to alert the police, to get her to the hospital in time. I feel like someone has kicked me in the guts, and I'm shaking now. You think he hurt her? I ask him. Well, his story keeps changing. First he said he found her in the bedroom. Then we started asking questions, and he said he came home and found her in the floor earlier that morning, and that he put her in the bedroom hoping she'd be all right. He says he thinks she got into his heroin and took that. My mother has never done heroin in her life, I tell him. To be honest with you, I think he did something to her. I just don't know that I can prove it. I feel sick. I'm hoping I can get through this call before throwing up. There's still the outstanding warrant for the strangulation, the detective tells me. We're going to take him for that. So we're taking him, him now, but I'll call you once we get the autopsy results and let you know what we find. The strangulation. When my mother had called me from the bathroom whispering into the phone that he had strangled her. I had called the police, told them to go over there to the house and to check on her, just like I had with the ashtray incident. They'd noted the bruising and had opened the warrant. But my uncle is very good at disappearing before the police shows up. He's pulled that magic trip many times before. So they didn't take him in February of 2019. That was just 17 months ago. Now, it felt like a lifetime. Once we do the preliminary examination, I'll give you a call. You'll call me after the autopsy, I say. Yes, ma'am, the detective says. Should be tomorrow or Sunday. And the call ends, and I sit there holding my phone. In the beats that follow, I cross some surreal line between reality and fiction. This can't be happening. I didn't just get a call from a detective. He didn't just tell me my mother might have been murdered by my uncle. I'm not waiting on the autopsy results. I write crime fiction. I don't live in it. Murderers are supposed to be faceless mafioso or perverts who bury people in their backyards or the deep dark woods. He's not supposed to be my own flesh and blood. He's not supposed to be a man my mother trusted, relied on. This can't be happening, I say to no one. It can't be. Disbelief seems like a very, maybe not predictable, but certainly understandable response to that moment, even within the context, of course, that there had been violent events between them before. That's, that's different from this, isn't it? It was, yeah, I mean, that's definitely where I started, which was like, no, like, no way, like, how in the, like, my brain just completely was in shock or it just could not absorb the possibility that he would do this to her even though there was another part of me it was like absolutely he did this to her <laughs> no but like the, major <laughs> the majority of my brain was just very it, I just it was clear I did not want to believe that this had happened to her um 
You know, one thing that comes to my mind, and I'd love your thoughts on this, to me, in my own visceral uh, body, in my own body, the difference between losing it and hurting someone and intentionally taking their life, those are two really different things in my body. When I yes. when I try to understand people, which I always try to do, you know, right. Those are two really different uh, psychologies, aren't they? They are, absolutely. And so it seems to me at this, at this moment, it might have been the first time you had to uh, consider the possibility that he could intentionally kill uh, a, a close relative. Yes. I mean, well, <laughs> you've listened to the whole podcast. I don't want to ruin it for anyone else, but there was rumor that he had done that once before, right? With my grandfather when he was on his way out the door. Yes. Um, so, I mean, but a rumor in like believing someone's actually capable of something is in my mind, at least two entirely different tiers of maliciousness. Um, well, and, and also you've introduced a third Character. Uh, a third thing that happens, which is um, people helping people along with mercy. Yeah. Yes. And so it would also be unclear what his motives were then as well, right? Like, why yes. would he do that to my grandfather um, if he did it at all? You know, what, what, what was his motives in that moment? And as you know, as the story progresses, it becomes murkier. It's like, well, maybe it wasn't. He was being, <laughs> doing it kindly. Maybe he <laughs> did have a vested interest. I have to tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I, as a practice, I try to practice compassion for people who press my buttons and who I can't fully understand. <laughs> yes. But I was hard pressed at certain moments to find my compassion because there was such a sense of reward for bad behavior. Oh my gosh, yes. I absolutely struggled with that and still struggle with that so much. Just the other day, like, I don't know, three, four days before we were doing this, um, I got a call from my uncle's attorney and he's still moving forward with the, the probate of my grandmother's estate. And and even just, even though I told them, you know, I have no interest in, in this, I don't want to know what how much money he's getting and stuff, just don't contact me. Um, it's still, I was so bothered by the conversation because the whole thing just screamed like he's getting what he's want, like he's getting what he wants. He's getting away with it. He, you know, he. And then your scab of grief is pulled off. Yeah. And so it's, it, the, the description you're using about feeling like bad behavior is rewarded. That's spot on. Like that's definitely what I'm struggling with most presently because it, it seems like he's just going to get away with, with what he's done. And it's like, I don't know how to always sit with that or to make peace with that. Um, mm -hmm. Even though I know that I'm far from the only person in the world who has lost someone and the justice system or circumstances have completely failed them, you know, so I, I can take a bit of solace in that, but it still doesn't feel right. Like, no, like, no. There's more than one of us. So great. Like, I mean, yeah. there's a, there's an, there's judgment and then there's just evaluation. You yeah. Know, it, yeah. Although I would prefer a world where the consequences were a lot of help for people. Mm -hmm. uh, in this particular world, the way in which justice is differential is so painful. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, and you do talk about this, which I really appreciated that 
if your uncle was from another demographic, not yes. a white man, there's no way that he would have been free to even Oh my live. gosh. Yes. Yes. The short answer is yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the longer answer is that when I was researching into everything about the family, my uncle's past, etc., he had... So again, I'm not an expert at reading uh, criminal records, but it was like 117 charges that had been dismissed or minimally punished. There was a lot of instances where he was uh, taken in for like two or three things, two or three counts at a time. And, you know, most of them would be dropped. And then the, the lesser charge would be like time served or like a few months in jail. And I'm like, who is who is in charge here? Like, it's just, you can't, you can't look at a sheet like this and just be like, what is going on? Like, seriously, like how many times did he have to stand in front of a judge for people like, oh, just go, go, go away. You know, you're fine. You're, you're going to get better. Like, like, I don't know what he's saying to these people in court, but he like, he must have a great courtroom game or something. I don't, I just can't imagine what he would say to be let off the hook so many times. And in my mother's case in particular, the strangulation charge, which we just read about, right? They dismissed that because, quote, the defendant is dead. And I was so infuriated when I saw that, you know, because of course, you know, I've been refreshing the his criminal record. <laughs> like I've got it in a browser and I just refresh it, you know. For the How would you help yourself? My <laughs> <laughs> God. And so I'm just, I was following the case as it was going through. And, you know, when they drop it because she's dead, I was just, I was so upset by that because I did not understand how because she was dead he didn't strangle her I'm like what? <laughs> like it doesn't mean it well, didn't also, happen because she's I, dead like, oh my I, God. I, I, <laughs> yes I have to tell you that when I reached that part I was thinking to myself wait a minute so someone can't be charged with murder because the person's already dead the person's like, already <laughs> dead you know that that's so preposterous to me right and of like, course my my primary intersection with anything uh criminal justice oriented is tv right i yes. i'm not any expert on that uh i am i am exposed to a lot of that because my wife loves it mm -hmm. but uh, you know it's not it's not real obviously because right. uh, in in any kind of crime drama there's no way that he would have gotten away with all that well yes well clearly crime dramas they're they're like aiming for some kind of version of a happily ever after resolution <laughs> of some sort well, there is no resolution here like there's the well there is a bit of resolution and we could talk about that later if you want me to oh, share yeah, the dream i, I had to. about my mom later but i don't, I don't oh that's so in interesting because next week i'm interviewing a, a man named joshua black who's done a lot of research on grief dreams oh interesting and the okay. potential for healing in them Oh, okay. um, so yes, I'd love to talk about that when we come back and it's, it's time for our first break. Okay. So a uh, good time to step away. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Corey Marie, you can go to whokilledmymother.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Corey Marie about the death of her mother and the podcast that came out of it, soon to be a memoir, Who Killed My Mother? And uh, before the break, uh, you mentioned that you had, th- the story goes on after the end of the podcast. It and, does. And, and of course, as life does, right? Yes, it does. <laughs> I, I, I was actually, when it when I listened to the final episode, I was thinking, oh, what happened next? Because <laughs> as a person who lives in the grief world, right. uh, that's also a very compelling story. What we do when we accept what we can and can't know, you know, when yeah. the, when we're done with kind of the overriding questions substantially, right? They're never yes. finished entirely, but, you know, we're, we're done with that first part and then the next things happen. So can you share? Uh, what your dream was? Yes, absolutely. And and it fits in perfectly with what you said of like, what's going to happen next is kind of a pr- premonition of what that was. So I should preface this by saying um, that, remember, it's pandemic times, everyone's learning how to bake bread, and they're buying an excess of houseplants. And whatever, <laughs> whatever. but because I have strange interests, my pandemic hobby was lucid dreaming. Uh, you, do you know what lucid dreaming oh, is? Oh, 100%. Uh, okay, so in case anyone doesn't, is when you, you're aware in your dream. So you know you're dreaming. It, something triggers lucidity for you, and you become aware in your dream that you're dreaming. And so that you know you're asleep and you're dreaming. And so I had been trying for, gosh, for probably since she had died all the way until uh, April 7th was when I had the dream. And I um, had been trying to find her in a lucid dream. And what I mean by that is I didn't know if I would necessarily like find her spirit. I don't, I don't have strong beliefs about what happens when we die. I don't 
know. I just, I don't even pretend to know what's going to go down. But um, I thought that maybe even if I could contact a part of my subconscious that would like, it would give me some kind of closure, right? Because it's very clear from my story that I'm not necessarily going to get it from an external source. So I was mm-hmm. trying to give it to myself um, with this. I wanted to have one more conversation with her, whether that be me versus me or me versus some spiritual whatever it means whatever it was I was <laughs> I was trying to make it happen right? uh, which this whole description should tell you a lot about who I am as a person I'm going to go into my dream and I'm going to give myself closure like I think that's probably many people breakdown. have tried it just out of desperation though <laughs> right so. please send a dream but you would you would investigate it more well <laughs> I did I was very investigative yeah I got the books I read the nightly thing I did the exercises I was very uh, methodical about it but anyway it it was very um, on the nose because I felt the, the day that it happened, April 7th, um, a white dove landed outside my office window and spent the day with me. It just And I should preface this by saying that there's a lot of animals in my yard. I'm someone who like feeds the critters. And so they've got like watering stations and, and things. So all kinds of animals come in and out of my yard as they will, you know, rabbits, squirrels, chipmunks. But I... Um, I had never seen a white dove and, and I thought I was so, you see it, you know, if you see a white dove and you're like, what is that? Like, oh, it feels like it means something. So I was like, I was like oh, but I didn't think at all that it meant I was going to have a dream. But that night I did have my lucid dream with my mother for the first time in the nine months that she had been dead. And so April 7th, I go to bed that night and then I wake up in the dream. So meaning I sit up in bed and it's exactly like my bed. So my wife is asleep beside me. Charlie's on my feet, trapping my legs, <laughs> just like it would be in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was in the bedroom, this, this very emotionally charged bedroom. It's the bedroom I slept in as a child when I lived with my grandparents. It's the bedroom, um, as I talk about in the podcast, the terrible things that happened to my mother happened in this room. And then also it was the room she died in, right? So it was a very... I guess me finding myself in that room triggered lucidity because it was like there was no way that my real bedroom and my wife, we were in this room, you know, so I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm dreaming. And so I got up from the bed and I walked to the house kind of looking for her. And at the other end of the house, there's a bedroom and I peered into it and it was just like black void. There was nothing in there. And I was just waiting. And I don't even know what I was waiting for in the dream or why I, I chose to wait there. But I heard in the darkness my mother say, Corey, is that you? And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. I was like, just tell me you're okay. Tell me you're okay. Because sometimes when you become lucid, if you get really excited, you wake yourself up. And so I knew, and I had done it so many times, you know, there was like, oh, I'm lucid. And then boom, I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm <awake. laughs> so, so I was expecting it to happen because I was clearly very excited, right? To have finally found her in a dream. And so um, I was like, just tell me before I wake up, tell me that you're okay. And she was like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And, but the way that she said it was so genuine because it wasn't like, oh, I'm great. You know, like, or I don't know how she would have said it in a way that would have made me be like, well, clearly you are a figment of my imagination. <laughs> but it seemed very honest, you know, like the way mm, if someone yes. had something had happened to them, you know, like maybe shortly after your wife died, for example, if someone said, are you okay? And maybe the way you would have responded was like, I'm okay. But it's it wasn't like things were great for you, but it was also just like you knew you would be okay or, you know, you yes, were moving forward absolutely, somehow. Absolutely. Right, so that was the tone. Yeah, so that was the tone in which she had responded. And so it felt very genuine. 
And but then the next thing she said was she like brushed her hands off, which I thought was funny. And she's like, but I didn't come to talk about me. I came to tell you, talk to you about you. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> you're like your heart drops. You're like, oh, my gosh. I didn't ask for this. <laughs> I did like, what is happening? The dream is getting out of control. <laughs> and she was like, I just wanted to tell you that you have to stop living your life like you're proving to everyone that you deserve to be here. She's like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to prove anything to me or anyone else. And so I was like, whoa, like, whoa. And then she hugged me and kissed me and I woke up and I was just like, holy. And I just, I cried for days. Like for like, I would just, every time I would think about it, I would just start crying. And I was just like, oh, but it was such a deep release cry. I don't, I don't know yes. how to better describe that, but I was so, I didn't realize how worried I was for her until I had woke up from this dream and was like inconsolable. I was like, oh gosh, like I must've been even hiding from myself, like how worried I was about maybe how well, she was or what state she was in or how things were for her or, or whatever. Um, but clearly like- I could, I could also imagine a part of all those tears being something like moved to tears. Yes. Because what a beautiful message to get from your mother, alive or dead. Uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> what, right. do, what do we long for to, yes. to really be convinced that we're okay? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, and let's be clear, she had my number. Like, like that is absolutely something <laughs> that is an underlying fear motivation. It's why I, I work so hard. It's why I've put so many books out. You know, it's like, it's why I, I run myself into the ground in so many different ways is because I'm like, I, I clearly live like someone who has something to prove. And I was like, wow, okay, well, what does that even look like? <laughs> now what do I do? And why yes. do I do it? <laughs> right, exactly. And that's exactly where I've been since April 7th, everyone. <laughs> like, what am I doing? What should I do? What should I do differently? But it, it goes perfectly with your question of what comes next, because that's really seems to be the question for me is how do I live my life in a way that's not driven by some of the fears I had acquired through these traumatic experiences, this, this, you know, things that, that came up for me um, about how I spend my time. And so it's just really been like a deep exploration of me of what I do, why I do it. Do I really need to do it? Does it really matter to me or how, you know, will I be glad I did this in five, 10, 20 years, or am I just rushing through my life, missing really great things? Um, because part of me is not convinced that I am safe now you know I'm, I'm not the same person that I was when I was a child and I had to endure a great many of these things you know the first 25 years of, or so of my life were very difficult and um, I'm not that person anymore you know I'll be 38 soon and so mm -hmm. there's a bit of distance and then also my life doesn't look anything like that life you know my home is safe and peaceful I'm in a very loving great marriage I have really supportive caring friends it, it doesn't look like it did you know then but there seems to be some part of me that keeps pushing me through my life who believes we haven't really escaped it or or somehow we're gonna find ourselves back in it or we're gonna become it or something you know like, like I have right. to you know it's trying to convince myself that no I really am okay and if I felt like she told me that I was and I was like well, <laughs> it's like, well the, if that's true, you know, like if that's really true, then how does that change everything? Like, how does that change how I want to live the next, you know, 40 years of my life? And, and that so, and that really, 
strikes me as, you know, what I'm deeply involved in investigating is what comes out of grief. Yes, grief. Yeah. And the re- the reality of all that, but what comes out of it? And that just is a perfect example, you know, of kind of deepening your own understanding of yourself in the world as a result of a terrible loss. Right. And it seems to me as if you've had that experience before uh, in kind of, uh, I don't want to say recovering, moving forward from your family trauma. Right. Yeah. Um, that 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 wasn't the first. Your mom's death and this grief is not the first. No <laughs> time that you've it's, been it's dealing not, with terrible loss. <laughs> no, no, we have, have like a top ten greatest hits or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, this is definitely one of the most. Um, uh, how would you describe that? Like impactful. Like it was definitely like it shifted a lot of things for me. Um, but it, yeah, it, it was just the last in a very long line, unfortunately, but a lot of healing came out of this surprisingly more than I had ever thought was possible, um, from a traumatic situation, which, which I hope is encouraging to listeners because most people consider what you've been through one of the more traumatic things a person could experience. But the fact that even in those circumstances, we can go forward. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know, you wrote a poem that's called Grief, and I wonder if you would share that because I feel it kind of captures the territory. And part of that is what I think it takes to move forward, really allowing ourselves the experience, yes? Oh, I mean, I think so. (laughs) I don't want to speak for anyone else. (laughs) We agree on that, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I'd be happy to read that for you. So it's called Grief. It hurt more than walking barefoot through a field of frost onto a trail so narrow as if only for one soul. Birch sentinels and white uniforms marred by black patches stood guard. I thought they would not let me pass. So I told them about the girl who grew sunflowers. I told them they could have the plates. They could have the queen-size bed far too big for the one body left behind. And you can have what is left of what I remember, of this life, of this love. And for this, they moved aside. Once there were brilliant orange and red starbursts. Now what was left was brown, shriveled, and tossed about. I went deep into the forest like a fugitive, like a refugee. But there is no refuge when what is broken is carried within you and the legs do not give up as soon as you'd like them to. I wanted to go out there and die, like an old dog who knew her time had come. It was the moon who changed my mind. She knows something of long nights. She has a way of meeting your eye, and speaking with a nightjar's trill, stating gently, like it or not, dawn always comes. It it really kind of captures what we were just talking about doesn't it that at first it's just you can't even imagine what will come next and then at some point you can (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, well, it's well, a very movie. magical process to me, or mysterious is a better yeah, word. Yeah, well, I mean, if we're going to believe the moon in my poem, it's like, well, no matter what happens, you're going to heal, whether or not you want to heal. Like, this is this is where we're going. <laughs> it's got, the, that moon is coming around the next night. Yeah, like <laughs> whether dawn, it's, dawn's whether on its way. or not. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're about to take a break, but I, I want to introduce something just before we do, which is I am serendipitously reading, uh, and you'd, you'd probably be stunned I haven't read it in the past, but The Body Keeps the Score. I have read this. Yeah. I yeah. Think uh, podcast, you'd think right? every, uh, every therapist who works with trauma would have read it, but I've been busy reading other books uh, for the radio <laughs> <dare> show. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm reading it, and you refer to it. Yes. And to me, it um, this this idea of recognizing trauma as actually the first step in in starting to move forward mm-hmm. um, was so evident to me. Uh, you know, unearthing all of your family's trauma and why they might have acted the way that they acted, even though it's so hard to understand. Right. Uh, yeah. That really moved me to have it integrated with your experience that way. So I'd love to hear you talk about that investigation that went on through this, through the making of the podcast in those early days when we come back. Absolutely. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page. Please follow the link to all kinds of ways to buy my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Corey Marie, you can go to whokilledmymother.com back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Corey Marie about her podcast, Who Killed My Mother? And before the, the break, Corey, I was, uh, I was inviting us to talk about the ways in which, um, you, you investigated your family's trauma almost as a way of, uh, of navigating grief that 
that really understanding why people might have done what they did and what was impacting them. Uh, there were several places in the podcast that were so moving to me because people in your family had done pretty unforgivable things, but you brought an understanding to what might have impacted them to do those things, which resonates with my point of view quite well. So I appreciate that so much. Can you talk about, was that hard to do? Because I find often people do that, but they don't do it right in the flow. You know, they might do it much later. What brought you to that so quickly? Um, Because you're, for one thing, your loss is relatively fresh. Uh, yes. So it seems like it just all happened at the same time. <laughs> I wish I could say I'm just a quick study. <laughs> I, I just really just blow past those personal obstacles. You know, nothing, nothing big deal. No big deal for me. <laughs> well, that would not be the that would not be the thing I'd want to put out on this show. <laughs> no, and and if you listen to the podcast or you read the the book, you'll know immediately that that those are jokes. Like I talk, I talk pretty much almost ad nauseum about how hard it was for me, and I did. Yeah, I, I really struggled. But um, yeah, the it's definitely true that. I have the sort of mind that likes to understand what has happened or what, what something is. And maybe that quest for understanding has always been my saving grace. You know, mm-hmm. maybe my ability to contextualize a terrible event has, has been the only thing that's allowed me to, to move past it or not to dwell on it. Um, but even that being said, there were definitely gaps in my healing up until this event. So, for example... Uh, my childhood with my mother was very difficult because she really suffered from mental illness, severe mental illness. She would um, demonstrate that not just in in substance abuse with with alcohol or pills were her preferred uh, forms of numbing out, but also she was very changeable emotionally. So one minute she would be okay, she'd be laughing, and the next minute she you know she would be hitting someone. Like she she didn't have a very stable mind, um, and she was never that way directly toward me. She was always loving towards me, which I guess is lucky for me. Um, not so much. But for you other witnessed people. it, though. But I witnessed it, yeah. And so that was still hard. Um, and because it's, it means I could never really relax, because it was like, did I need to jump in and step between her and someone? Um, in an inst- you know, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a great situation. But um, I didn't really understand why she was the way she was until I started investigating what my uncle had done. And I think it was because she had died shrouded in so much confusion that I was like, I need an answer. You know, maybe if she had just Mm -hmm. died quietly in her bed 20 years from now of something, I would just been like, I wouldn't have felt as compelled to search for answers, but because she died the way she died, I wanted to understand what was happening. Like I just, I wasn't getting answers from anyone and it was becoming pretty clear that the police uh, weren't going to do much because it was just the two of them there. And how could they prove that he had given her drugs? You know, so it was like, I was going to have to get this, these answers myself. And so I started interviewing people that had no- known my uncle, knew my mom. I started really digging up their past, like public records, things like that. And um, I discovered that my mother's, what I call her detonation event, like there was a reason that she had severe mental illness. So, for example, the story I had before the, the truth came out was that she started developing her psychosis around age 12. She started having seizures. 
She dropped out of school. She didn't finish eighth grade. By 16, she had run off with a guy. Like her impulsivity was showing itself um, by, by 17 or whatever. She had divorced him. And by 19, she had married my dad. Um, then when my father went to prison, she was back at my grandmother's and she was, you know, drinking like a fish and, and taking pills, et cetera. And the, you know, the other things that had happened along the way. So it was, this is like the kind of piecemeal story that I had. But then I found out that my, do you mind if I tell what happened or I don't know how? No, it, <laughs> is it a family friendly fine. show? Is it family entirely friendly show? Because <laughs> this is not family friendly. Um, this is the antithesis of family friendly. But the, the detonation event was that her father was raping her. And so, and my grandmother, so my grandfather was my mother's rapist. And my grandmother, when she found out, basically silenced my mother. So my, my mom was completely boxed in, 10 or 11 years old, on both mm -hmm. sides by her mm -hmm. parents. And essentially that broke her mind, right? Like that, that completely traumatized Which I her. I don't find hard to understand. No, and so why that the, would break you, right? <laughs> yes, we no one is questioning why she, <laughs> she developed mental why she developed seizures and why she developed mental disorders and and um, why she ran away from home with any man that would take her. You know, like it was pretty clear, like why she was now doing these things. And then it also made a lot more sense why I had not really seen her as a drinker or a pill taker until we moved back to my grandmother's house because my mother she didn't have any financial choice it was either you know uh prostitution or or moving but like she there were no financial opportunities for someone who had an eighth grade education you know and yes. so um she had the option of of starving or starving her five-year-old i was four or five at the time um or moving back to the one financially stable person in in her life which was her rapist and when we moved back to the house now her daughter's sleeping in the room where this happened to her and and you know and and she just she completely lost not lost it but you know she started drinking and she no, started how can how can i how can i turn this switch off yeah like she was trying yeah. to like she had no choice but she also you know she, i'm sure that she was consumed by her terror about what may happen i was younger than she was but i'm sure it seemed like a ticking clock you know was was going off somewhere in her mind about you know we, i have to figure out how i'm going to provide for us and i have no means and i'm she's so unwell you know i can't imagine trying to hold down a job when you've got severe um, untreated mental illness and PTSD. And she just did not have the support she needed to, to get away from him or to, to do uh, well by herself, let alone her small child. And, and so it's just, when I learned all of that, it just, I don't know, it, I keep describing it to people as if you had glass in your foot, right? So you have glass in your foot and you've been walking on it for a long time and you find out how to like maybe come up on your toes or walk on the side, like you work around it, right? Yes. But, but when you finally pull the glass out, you just can't imagine why you walked around like that for so long. And, and it felt like that. I felt like learning the truth about what had happened to her was like removing all the glass from my feet because it took all the, the soreness and the tenderness away. Like things that I like, you know, when, when I have to go to visit her in jail on Thanksgiving, when all the other kids are excited to go home and eat good meals. And, you know, my Thanksgiving does not look like that. And I'm bitter yes. and I'm sad and I feel disappointed. You know, like it was much it, it left like a, a bit of a, you know, a pain, a, a tenderness, a soreness in me. But when I realized like, it's because she, you know, she was, she didn't 
drink and drive on purpose or because she hated being my mother or something is because she was being, you know, chased by her figurative demons for her. Yes. It it created your trauma, but it was impersonal also. It was impersonal, but I didn't know that until I found out what had happened. And so once I learned what had happened, I was able to separate, oh, like this was never about me. Like the, the times that she was very present and she was very loving and she was a very good mom, that that was my mom. Like this but, other mm-hmm. stuff was not, it wasn't her. You know, like, I mean, it was her, obviously. I'm not saying this, this stuff didn't happen, but it was, that was the, the part of her that it was It was her trauma more yes, than Yes, exactly. Yes. And it was never coming out because of me, which I think children internalize a lot of that, right? Absolutely. They feel like it's me, like I did something wrong. Like I'm Absolutely. the reason why my parents can't love me or, you know, however we frame that when we're, when we're kids. When but, we're little. Yeah. yeah. I think it would be a beautiful moment for you to read your poem, Evolution. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just because we're talking about that, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yes, me <laughs> evolving, <laughs> evolving from before your eyes, <laughs> before before our very eyes. That's the next. That's the next season, I guess. Of me figuring out how to live without proving running myself into the ground to prove that I'm Yes, exist. exactly, exactly. Okay, okay. So evolution. The seamen took the boat out. Roared so far beyond the dock, the water wasn't gray anymore, but the translucent blue of unsettled ice. They dropped their nets into the water, pulled out starfish to collect on the deck. Once the deck was so full, the planks disappeared. The seamen gathered them in their hands, one at a time, and tore the starfish into smaller pieces. After separating each limb, they tossed the fragments overboard, grabbed another, and began again. They didn't stop until the planks were clean, though wet and slick like their hands. They did this to be rid of them, to save their oyster crop. The men called it control. At first, they didn't know if torn from their center, leaving a remnant of core still attached to its limb, a starfish can remake itself. But they learned when they returned after two summers to find thousands of stars in the water. That last line really, really touches me to find thousands of stars in the water. Um, for one thing, doesn't it kind of look like that sometimes when you look at a, uh, when you're out on a boat and look in the water? Yes. And the that fact was intentional, that, Cheryl. If you know. <laughs> I, I figured, but oh, I saw I it. Very I saw it in my mind immediately. You know, <laughs> I worked very hard on that line. <laughs> 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 the, the 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 work shows yes because you're such a really good writer and I know that that has to be that has to come from inspiration as well so yes, so here's what I I want to hope for you that um absent the the need to prove yourself <laughs> that <laughs> yes. you will do Season exactly <laughs> what calls you because it will be beautiful oh thank you you're very welcome. I really feel that way, and I can't wait to see what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. For me, too. To find Corey Marie, you can go to whokilledmymother.com. Next week, I'll have Joshua Black. His groundbreaking research into grief dreams brings new insight into how dreaming can inform and illuminate our grief.
This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón. 